I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Faden. A geometrical pattern fills the screen, silver threads and moonlight, part of a spider's intricate web. That was the opening of James Cameron's scriptment for Spider-Man. Oh, you didn't know James Cameron almost made Spider-Man before comic book movies were cool? In 1993, coming off of The Terminator, he wrote First Blood 2, Rambo, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2. His first film, though, was actually a little picture known as Piranha 2 The Spawning. James Cameron was originally hired as the special effects director for this film and took over the direction when the original director left. The executive producer and Cameron did not get along. Apparently, he broke into the editing room in Rome and cut his own version while the film's producers were at Cannes. On the Terminator 2 Judgment Day commentary track, Cameron jokingly defended the film as the finest flying killer fish horror comedy ever made. Terminator 2 went on to be a monster hit. Cameron was now firmly positioned as one of the most powerful directors in Hollywood. He would use this to his advantage, as he set his sights on a project he had dreamed of developing since freshman year of high school. Spider-Man! The whole thing started because Cameron was actually producing an X-Men movie for his then-wife Catherine Bigelow, with the cast of Bob Hoskins as Wolverine and Angela Bassett as Storm. Stan Lee brought up Spider-Man. The conversation really was off to identity. the races. It's about identity and values, and when you're, when you're 16, 17 years old, you're not accepting what you've been told. You have, you're creating your own value system, and everybody does. And uh, if you can do anything you want, and nobody can stop you, and you're 17 years old, you better have a pretty good value system, or you better find one. Steve Ditko designed the Spider-Man that we know today, from initial concept designs from Jack Kirby that was prompted by Stan Lee. Although there were few iterations of Spider-Man outside of comic books, there wasn't much. As far as TV goes, there was a TV cartoon, there was a crappy show that also had a couple features that weren't really movies, and then there was the licensed Japanese show as well. The first movement on Spider-Man movie began in 1985. Canon Films, the notoriously schlocky B-movie studio helmed at the time by Israeli cousins Menaheim Golan and Yerum Globus. In 1985, the company purchased a five-year option to the film right for Spider-Man from Marvel for $225,000. Golan and Globus had a fundamental misunderstanding of who Spider-Man was, and they planned to make a B-movie version where Spidey was a mutant tarantula-like monster with eight arms. They even attached Toby Hooper, the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After he left, they got the director Joseph Zito. Joseph Zito said Golan and Globus didn't really know what Spider-Man was. They thought it was like the Wolfman. B-movie director Albert Pyun was then attached. He was brought on by Cannon to direct this film in 1988, starring relative unknown actor stuntman Scott Leva as Parker slash Spider-Man. Due in large part to overspending, Cannon Films went under and was acquired by Path Communications. Golan resigned to start his own production company, 21st Century Film Corporation. Golan retained the film rights to Spider-Man. Now enter Karolko Pictures and James Cameron. Similar to Canon Pictures, only on a grander scale, they paid big money for screenplays, A-list stars, and big-budget blockbusters. Cameron approached Karokul, with whom he had made T2, with his idea to bring Spider-Man to the silver screen. 
Mannheim Golan sold the rights to Kuroko Pictures for $5 million. The studio then hired Cameron to write, direct, and produce the film. Cameron began work on a screenplay, turning in a first draft toward the end of shooting True Lies, but really he was just putting his name on a previously written screenplay to keep things moving. Later that year, he submitted his true scriptment, an extended film treatment with dialogue and screen direction. This time, Stanley loved the scriptment and gave it his full endorsement. He said, it was the Spider-Man we all know and love, yet all somehow seemed fresh and new. Cameron got paid $3 million from Kuroko. He deserved every penny. But before we get into the treatment, let's talk casting. First up was Edward Furlong as Peter Parker. This guy had a mouth on him at a young age and a spunk and a style that nobody can match today. Leonardo DiCaprio was another choice. Either one of them would have been amazing. Leo was doing basketball diaries and things like What's Eating Gilbert Grape. This guy was incredible. Up next are the villains. Carl Strand, Cameron's version of Electro. It was amazing. And guess who would have played him? Lance Henriksen but he wanted Michael Bean to play Boyd, his version of Sandman. This guy was ultra cool in Terminator. He would have been incredible. Now back to the opening. It starts with Peter Parker up above the city, hanging on what better than the most iconic figure at the time before it got destroyed, the World Trade Center. He grabs a newspaper as he narrates to us. The newspaper has his own face on it as a criminal. He tears it up into shreds like it's easy, but we know it's thick. This is the only version that Peter was from Maryland, but his parents died when he was three years old, and then he moved to Queens with his old aunt and uncle. Obsessed with MJ, they get paired for a science project because she needs to get better grades so she can get a nice car and maybe go to college. Then Peter Parker goes on his own accord to a university lecture about spiders being tested with radioactive something something, I don't remember. But the spider comes down on his hand and bites him in the classic way, but Mary Jane isn't in this version. Um, this was added in Sam Raimi's version. But he gets bit by the spider and then from then on out, we have the classic transformation, right? He goes home, he's not feeling well, he goes hard and he just passes out. And um, he, he starts to have this transformation, right? And he, he has these trippy dreams. And in, in Cameron's script, he actually refers to them as David Lynchian dreams. And these, these were maintained as the script went on in uh, Raimi's versions, as you can see. But I assume he would have been much trippier, much darker, much, much more about this darkness consuming. In Cameron's version, he actually wakes up in his boxers on a telephone tower. And then he runs home, then he just hides in the cellar, right? And then the darkness starts to consume him and it's really trippy. Then he wakes up and yes, he's got the body transformation where he doesn't need his glasses and his body is ripped. But but Cameron then did something else when he wakes up, right? In his version, he has a, a spidey wet dream, so to speak. He wakes up and he's sticking to the sheets and it's from his organic webbing, which is something that Raimi took on as well. He starts running down the street. Suddenly he comes to a stop in the middle of the road, is nearly hit by a truck, but jumps 20 feet into the air, lands on a building. A kid's passing by and he calls to the kid to call 911. The kid doesn't, but Peter slowly starts to figure out his powers. He begins to climb walls, to use his web to, to swing and he's starting to understand this power and it's terrifying to him but also 
uh, a little bit exciting for a guy that's kind of been a, a weak, geeky dweeb for his whole life. Uh, yeah, we got that Raimi version. Wouldn't have had that in Cameron's version. But he discovers the, the way to shoot it. He's consuming more calories than ever. He's getting an urge to run out at night, and he actually decides to spy on Mary Jane. We get this a little bit in Raimi's version, but he was spying on her changing, actually. So then he goes on, and he starts to perform on streets. He's made himself webbing contraption to hide his webbing because he doesn't want to be looked at as a freak, eventually getting asked to go on a variety show. Then we finally cut to the villain, Strand. He's sitting in front of all these TVs. He's powerful, he's electric, and then we see the origin of who Strand is through telling of Peter Parker. And he was on the run from the cops and he runs into a lightning field and gets electrocuted. And he's able to do all sorts of things like control data and that's how he gets wealthy like Donald Trump. The most poetic thing about this electro, he cannot touch people. And he has this girl he loves, Cordelia, and they have to bang in a rubber suit. But then one time he touches her and he nearly kills her and he has to revive her. Then Pete sees Flash slap Mary Jane one day. He gets on his costume and he kicks the crap out of Flash and he nearly kills him. Uncle Ben tries to talk with him about what life is about. So Pete goes to save this woman from being beat by her husband and then she starts beating him. He also sees that Mary Jane is wearing a popular girl mask. Then after a game show, Cordelia approaches him and then Boyd. And we realize this guy is a Sandman, right? And it's kind of interesting if you think about it because, you know, in T2, we had the T-1000, right? And Cameron was really into the shape-shifting CGI technology that he would have taken into the Sandman character, and I'm assuming it would have been above uh, caliber of special effects today. So then we get the classic Uncle Ben dying scene, and it's the same way in Raimi's. He has a booking agent that he needs to get money from. He has Uncle Ben drive him. He tells him it's for something else because he doesn't want anyone to know his identity. The booking agent doesn't pay him, and then he gets robbed, and he lets that guy go. Um, and the guy gets away, as we see, and he's like, oh, it's not my job, you know? Um, pretty much similar to the Raimi version. So then Pete goes out, and he sees that his uncle's dead, and then this is when we have the first kind of uh, experience of vengeance that he has and he uses his power to track this guy down in Cameron's script he he holds himself off and he just drops him to the cops uh, in, an, in a webbing and they actually try to arrest him so he realizes people don't like him Jameson starts to talk about him as a villain we learn a little bit about Boyd the Sandman from Strand as he's trying to tell Pete to join him. Boyd's story is pretty similar where he was working on the science project in the desert and he was in the tunnel that they were gonna do teleportation thing that pretty much the fly right so he gets molecularly combined with sand. Strand found him and converted him to being this kind of super villain group where he believes that everybody should just take what they want. He tries to convince Spider-Man of this but Spider-Man's not really having it and we have our first kind of Fight, but he gets away and his suit's roughed up and he has to buy it from a gift shop. He stops these robbers and realizes they're just young kids and he even lets one fall to his death. He even robs some drug dealers at one point and thinks about taking the money and decides to just give it to all these kids on a basketball court. He's like Robin Hood. Strand's like, all right, I gotta find this dude now. We gotta find him. Pete follows Mary Jane one day and these guys chase after like they do and he beats them up, saves Mary Jane. You know, in this version, we have this, this steamy kind of 
kiss, right? In Cameron's version, however, Spider-Man takes Mary Jane to the Brooklyn Bridge where he ties her up with his webbing and performs a spider mating ritual where the woman submits to the male and he does this little dance and we get much more provocative version. Strand sees Spider-Man swinging away with Mary Jane and he uses it to give to Jameson to say that Spider-Man has kidnapped this girl. And so Spider-Man is lured into a trap. He goes to Strand's house and finds Cordelia dead. He plays a video of Strand saying he's on the World Trade Center with Mary Jane. So Spider-Man goes to the World Trade Center, but now at this point the cops are chasing him, but he goes to the World Trade Center to save Mary Jane. And we get one final appeal from Strand. He places all this money out, but Spider-Man's like, I don't need that. Ah! And he just saves Mary Jane, and then he has an epic showdown with the Sandman. And I mean, epic showdown with the Sandman, right? And it's a fight, you know, like we've seen similar in other movies, but certainly would have been different with Cameron doing it, but he pulls Sandman in front of one of Electro's shocks and he turns to glass. Then we get Electro and Spider-Man showdown. Spider-Man manages to web Strand as he's falling off the World Trade Centers. But Spider-Man tries to save him, but he dies in his arms as Spider-Man reveals it's just a kid to him. And Strand cannot believe it. Days later, Peter Parker reveals himself to Mary Jane after he gets the kiss on his own as Peter Parker. And then, of course, Flash sees it, and he comes, and he swings on him. But Peter doesn't even lay a fist on him in Cameron's version. He just dodges every punch and uses his webbing to make him flip, and he beats him up and embarrasses him in front of everyone. We get the full arc of Peter asserting his confidence as Peter and not with the mask of Spider-Man. Now, Mary Jane and Peter do end up going to different colleges, but we learn they stay together. So where did it all go wrong? Golan was unable to finance the film, so he sold the theatrical rights to Karokal, the television rights to Viacom, and the home video rights to Sony Columbia Pictures. This would come back to haunt all parties involved. Fast forward to 1995, 21st century facing bankruptcy themselves sold off their film library to MGM Studios. This included rights to all drafts and versions of the Spider-Man screenplays. Now, having entered bankruptcy, restructuring, and the rights to Spider-Man restored, Marvel settled all outstanding suits and then sold the film rights to Sony in 1998 for a reported $7 million. Realizing the golden opportunity now in front of them, Columbia Pictures wasted no time in moving forward on development for their Spider-Man film. Columbia hired Sam Raimi in January 2000. As for the screenplay, Columbia optioned only the Jim Cameron scripts and scriptment for the basis of their film. Well, Spider-Man was always my main man growing up, and uh, I actually, I actually rescued that that uh, project from the from the kind of the ash heap, and started to develop it when I was at Carolco. Then Carolco went bankrupt, and then and then uh, eventually it got resurrected at Sony with Sam Raimi, and now it's on on its next generation after that. I'm not going to touch Spider-Man now because I think they've got that. You know, I mean, it's going. So uh, I don't really have a backup to that. I mean. You know, I, I always loved the Marvel guys, never really liked Batman and Superman much, but I have to say Chris Nolan knocked it out of the park with the, with the three Batman movies. You know, so I'm, I'm now kind of a convert. If I, have to, if I have to be a DC fan, it'll be on the limited basis that if Chris Nolan directs it, I'll go see it. <laughs> we can do this all night. I'm, in, I'm into this. With Kurokal down, Cameron tried to get Fox to go after Spider-Man, but procuring rights now meant entering a nasty legal fight and potentially a bidding war involving multiple other studios and producers with overlapping claims on the project. They're so risk-averse. For a couple hundred thousand dollars in legal fees, they could have had a $2 billion franchise. They blew it. 
On the four screenwriters responsible for the final screenplay, Co-op was given sole credit. Reportedly, the other three voluntarily gave up their credits. Cameron's response? I didn't feel that injured. Slighted, but not injured. Cameron went on to do Titanic and win a bunch of awards and make so much money he didn't really give a shit. James Cameron then went on to make Avatar and break all the box office records once again. And what is he doing now? He's making Avatar 2, 3, 4, and 5. Say what you want about the choice to continue in this world, but I will never underestimate James Cameron. James Cameron's Spider-Man was to be a dark and complex character study as well as a high-concept action-packed movie. This was an R-rated film, and in my opinion, had this movie been made, it would have steered the course of comic book movies in a completely different direction, and we would have gotten to films like The Joker maybe a little bit sooner.